This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, by the way, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media, our telephone number. If you want to join the national conversation here on America's Late Night Town Hall, we're live, we're national, and the phone number is 833, the number four, my last name, Valdez, and that's Valdez with an S, 833-482-5337. And it is the anniversary of the murder of Malcolm X, Yep, I bet you thought I was going to start with something different, didn't you? I like to do a little history every now and again and use that historical analysis to point in other directions. And uh, I'm looking at a headline today. It says, Malcolm X's family's planning to sue the FBI, CIA, NYPD, and I think somebody else, for his death. And and they go on to, you know, this is his daughter, uh, Eliasha Shabazz. She... Um, she says that U.S. officials fraudulently concealed evidence that they conspired and executed a plan of their own to execute her father. Now, there's been questions around his death for a very long time. Three members of the Nation of Islam were, were sentenced to prison uh, as a result of it. Uh, but it's interesting, right? Now, she's 60 years old right now. Um, Malcolm X, I think, was 39 at the time he was fatally shot. Uh, 58 years ago in New York at the uh, Audubon Ballroom. So I wanted to talk about Malcolm X and not so much about the anniversary of his death and all that, but more so on the things that he said. There were things he warned about. And you might have heard these before, and I find them interesting, but I'm look, I find them interesting in a bigger context, right? It's not just because every now and again he says something I might agree with. No, it's more so that the way it fits into this puzzle piece and uh, it, it just fits so hand in glove with uh, what we're about to get into, right? So I guess the best way to preface this is to say Malcolm X, I, Malcolm X, I believe, was somewhat prescient in his, um, in his rhetoric on certain things. And while there was a, you know, a, a hyper racial tone to everything because of the time of history that it was, there were there were elements of what he said that I think made sense and still ring true today. And one of those uh, was captured in a, uh, in a short talk that he did. And we have a couple of clips of audio of that. So I'm going to let you hear the first one. Check this out. In this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools 
used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. Now, when you hear that, it's again, it's steeped in the in the racial rhetoric of, of the time. But when you, you really take it apart, you think, man, well, you know, it's there's uh, some truth to that today. Right. Some of the the same things are going on in, in today's uh, heated political exchanges. But Malcolm X goes on to explain specifically what he views as the biggest threat to the, the people he represented. Right. The Nation of Islam, black black families, black men. Um, and and who specifically within the political spectrum of that time it was. Check this out. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football, and the white liberals control this ball through tricks or tokenism, false promises of integration and civil rights. In this game of deceiving and using the American Negro, the white liberals have complete cooperation of the Negro civil rights leader, who sell our people out for a few crumbs of token recognition, token gains, token progress. Now, when he's talking about that, I couldn't help but think of who are those today? Who are these these race baiters, these race hustlers? And what came to mind, individuals like Benjamin Crump, individuals like Al Sharpton, people that take advantage of, of racial grievances and turn them into an entire industry for themselves. And it, it comes as no surprise to me that what he's talking about then is still true today. And that Benjamin Crump is the lawyer on this case representing his daughter. Just it, to me, it's just fascinating the way it all everything comes full circle and how, you know, past truly is prologue in so many ways. And and here we are. Right. So here we are, you know, 58 years later and in very much uh, the same way, but yet with very much progress made. So uh, I just a little bit of a historical analysis on that and, and the bigger picture that I wanted to draw attention to. And I know I don't have a ton of time left, but um, the bigger picture for me was Back then, everything was very hyper-racial. But today, we find ourselves in a very similar situation, right? Where, you know, even if we, we aren't hyper-racial as a people, we don't necessarily, you know, care who our kids are hanging out with in many ways, in many times, as long as they're not, you know, 
people that are on drugs or people that are getting into trouble. You know, I, I, I've never told my kids that they can't go to a black friend's house or a white friend's house or whomever's house, but because of their race. And I don't think there's many people that do do that. Now, there might be a couple somewhere uh, that are, you know, steeped in that tradition of racism and haven't evolved yet. And that's that's fine. But um, I don't know them and I, I don't see this often. So I know it's not a prevalent thing. But in the larger context of, of movements in America, there was a very popular movement in America known as the communist movement back in the days. And it's morphed into many different things, the labor movement of all things, uh, the, um, the progressive movement. All of these things had their roots in the communist movement. If you don't believe me, check it out. But, but there's a particular um, idea that I want to impress upon you, and if I could do it in a few seconds. Th- there was a, um, a piece written by J.M. Blunt. In, in an essay um, called The National Question, Decolonizing the Theory of Nationalism. This was back in 1987, but it was from an original piece that he wrote in a Monthly Review in 1977, where the title was, Are Puerto Ricans a National Minority? And this whole question of national minority was very much one of the, the Marxist, communist uh, things that they moved, this, this idea that they promoted. And one of the things that uh, I look when I hear Malcolm X talk about all this racial segregation, it just makes me think of how they do that today and they do it to everybody. You know, so today the conversation would be brown conservatives or brown liberals. Right. Uh, and I guess I would be the brown conservative in, in a sentence like that. And it's just interesting to me to see how things come full circle and you just change a few players around. But the rhetoric remains the same. So we'll continue that discussion Um uh, throughout the evening and probably dig into it a little bit more at the at the, um, at the top of hour number three. But I want to get into what's going on with Biden. Is it too little, too late, right? And what's he doing with the presidential pardon process? That's something that we're going to dig into in, uh, in the next segment with our upcoming guest, uh, who's scheduled to be with us, Attorney General Matthew Whitaker. So don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. is night. This is Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S on all of the social media and our phone number is 833-4-VALDEZ. And I want to talk a little bit about what is happening with uh, President Biden and this uh, his administration's plans to change how pardons work. Uh, this is an interesting thing because you know, the pardons have been around forever, and I have never heard of this being, uh, you know, I've heard of people saying, can you pardon yourself? Can you pardon so-and-so? There's questions about the pardon, but not so much like maybe changing a pardon where you could go after somebody that was already pardoned. I thought we had a whole double jeopardy rule. But again, I'm not a lawyer, and I don't play one on the radio either. But I know somebody who is. He's former acting attorney general of the United States, Matthew Whitaker. He's with the uh, America First Policy Institute. General, welcome, sir. Hey, Rich. Great to be with you, my friend. How are you? Always always a pleasure. So what in the world is going on with Joe Biden and this, this uh, what seems to me like a, a crazy plan? It seems like he doesn't like this guy, Philip Esformis, and uh, because of that, he's coming after him again. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting case. Um, it's you know it's it's got a lot of history. It goes back to the Obama administration, and in this case, um, this gentleman was charged with with a, with a bunch of crimes. Uh, ultimately, um, you know, it, it had twists and turns. One of the big problems this case had really from the start was that the government seized 70 boxes of documents that were attorney-client privilege documents, went through all of them, and, you know, was, was able to employ that as part of their um, trial strategy. And, you know, even former Attorney General Ashcroft said this was the most egregious uh, example of misconduct he knows of and has ever seen. And so, I mean, I think, you know, that was what this case started off as, um, Made twists and turns. Uh, you know, the the jury did convict uh, Mr. Esformes of about a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars worth of worth of uh, crimes, and um, and then and did not reach a verdict on the big charges, which was in the tens of millions of of dollars. Um, and ultimately, the judge sentenced him for the for those for the the highest dollar possible because of the the way the sentencing guidelines work. And so he was sentenced over 20 years. And, you know, again, based on all the facts and circumstances and using uh, his pardon powers and commutation uh, powers under the Constitution that are absolute, um, President Trump decided that this case uh, um, deserved a commutation of the sentence, that it was a a gross uh, miscarriage of justice, that that two or three years was appropriate, which Mr. Isforms already served, and not the 20 years. And so he uh, let him out of jail as his power. And ultimately now uh, the Biden administration and the Department of Justice are going to retry Mr. Esformas on the on the charges that he had been sentenced to, uh, had not convicted of. Uh, and we're going to, you know, uh, they, they say they're going to do it all over again. It's just, I think it's just an, a complete abuse of power. And, you know, the other thing that I know about this case uh, is that uh, when Trump issued this clemency uh, to Mr. S. Formas, uh, the the prosecution team said it was like a kick in the teeth. So they're treating this as a very personal matter uh, mm. out of the Southern District of, of Florida down in Miami. So now let's just to make sure I'm getting this right. So th- this gentleman was was prosecuted and then he was found guilty on these charges and they sent them to jail. Is that correct? On, on some of the charges and some of the charges not he was not. He was, he was oh, not yeah. So are they trying to go and after him he, on the ones he wasn't found guilty on? Exactly. Exactly. Because and the, the part, had, it wasn't had, a pardon. Uh, it was just a commuting of a sentence. And that's why they're able to correct. do this. Wow. Yeah. Not only that's that, great. but the, the, the parts that he was not convicted of was a hung jury. So they, they resulted, uh, you know, they, they convicted him on a few of the charges, uh, the lesser charges for less money. The big money charges, they couldn't reach a verdict, but he was sentenced to, and that's what he was, that sentence is what he was commuted on, because you can, you can take into account, uh, the judge can take into account on a sentence, and then I, this again, we're going to get, we're going to nerd out here, Rich, a little bit on the law. But that's fine. Judge take your take time with it. It's a smart audience. Um, yeah, the judge can take into account uh, conduct, um, it was either acquitted conduct or conduct related to the case, and so... You know, the, uh, Mr. Esformas was sentenced uh, for the for the full boat, and again, he was. President Trump looked at the totality of the circumstances and using the broad um, clemency powers of the Constitution that's, that are solely vested in the United States. Um, granted, 
um, you know, relief because it was, it is an egregious case uh, and, a, and a real abuse of, I think, um, the prosecution's powers. And so, and now it's personal uh, with the federal government and that's never good because obviously I think, Rich, that the, you know, the Department of Justice has always got to wear the white hat and always has to do justice and not mm -hmm. care about winning cases. Yeah, I agree with that. And and I, I'm just curious here to know, I know that there was some some um, criticism over information that was utilized that with respect to mm -hmm. attorney-client privilege. How did that come about? Yep. Yeah, well, they, they executed a search warrant and grabbed uh, a bunch of documents, including 70 boxes of attorney-client privilege documents. Um, and uh, the magistrate judge um, was very harsh uh, in his opinion of the government's conduct in that case. And, and, uh, and the trial team was punished uh, for what they did uh, with those uh, clearly uh, protected documents and should never have used them as part of their case. And would you say that this is another incident or incidents of somebody getting a short end or the short end of the stick because they were somehow related to Trump in one way or another? Yeah, I really – yeah, in this case, I think it really is because it was a Trump pardon and there was you know, possibly just a very small toehold uh, that this administration wants to completely undo – you know, I, I think obviously, um, and I don't want to speak for President Trump. I know him well, but I, you know, in this case, it is very clear that since Mr. Sformas was sentenced uh, for the full conduct that was considered a trial, even though there was uh, part of the charges weren't, uh, you know, brought to a conviction, that, you know, that, that President Trump intended to get, you know, to capture all of the behavior. And so to go back, uh, and reopen that case and to recharge and, and to try to convict um, on the on the charges that weren't initially convicted all, even though he's sentenced, uh, you know, I think it's just, it is, you know, while it's not technically double jeopardy, I think it sure feels like that. And certainly President Trump intended uh, to, you know, let this person go home and, and continue with his life and that he had served enough based on, you know, the, the White House's review of the case. Now, I guess with... Um in, in about 15 or 20 seconds, just a quick yes or no, I guess. Do, do you think they have a shot at, at, get, at pulling this off, or uh, does uh, Formas have a defense? Yeah, I mean, obviously uh, they couldn't convict him the first time, um, and, and, the, and the jury was, 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 uh, could not reach a unanimous decision. So I think he certainly you know, could you know, fight this at trial. It's just I just don't think it's a, a good use of the government's resources in this particular case just because of the – way that he had already previously been sentenced and President Trump, you know, already considered it and, and granted him some executive clemency. Right. Nor is it fair in any way. Right. I mean, it doesn't seem fair yeah, in the it's least. Fundamentally not fair. Correct. That's the, that's the real the, the overarching issue with this case is it's just not fair what they're planning on doing by going after him again. Yeah, we keep seeing over and over the theme, no matter what, whether it's the Twitter files, whether it's this, whether it's um, what they do with Ukraine, all of it. It's using the system to destroy the system. And it's, it's a shame. All right, Attorney General Matt Whitaker, stick with me uh, because we're coming right back. I want to talk a little bit about Section 230 in the Supreme Court, some January 6th surveillance, and what is going on with Trump in Georgia. Don't go anywhere. It's America at Night. I'm Rich Valdez.
Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. And thank you for everything. I know you very well. And I have, I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen and they love your show and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, 833-482-5337-833, the number four Valdez, and that's Valdez with an S, just like on social media, Valdez with an S, if you want to chime in. Either way, we're on with a former attorney general of the United States, Matthew Whitaker, and you can find him at MattWhitaker46 on Twitter, and his website is Whitaker.tv. Now, General, let's um, pivot here a little bit. Uh, I'd like to go to what is, you know, we're talking about pardons and and that were issued by President Trump. Um, what is the story with, with Georgia? I see not a lot of reporting, but there's a little bit of reporting saying that there's a jury that's recommending indictments. And uh, I didn't know juries made any recommendations. I thought they just said guilty or not guilty. Right. So this is a special grand jury uh, that ah. has been assembled and they issued a secret report uh, that a magistrate judge in state court in Georgia has kept under seal for large parts. He's released a little bit, one of the sections that really doesn't give us much information. Uh, the Just, I think, yesterday, the um, foreperson of that, grand, of that special grand jury spoke to, I think, the New York Times or some other uh, big media outlet. And, you know, just kind of the same drumbeat, right? You know, indictments are coming. We, you know, we recommended a bunch of indictments on a bunch of people and et cetera, et cetera. But you know, we don't know what exactly is behind the curtain. And I think that's, you know, part of what, you know, they love. It's, it's a little bit like the January 6th committee or any of these other things where, you know, or kind of like an Adam, anything of Adam Schiff's involved in, you know, there's always <laughs> yeah. all these claims of these blockbuster big deals uh, that never seem to uh, come to fruition. But we're going to, I think the county prosecutor down in Fulton County, I believe it is, um, is reviewing as you know who to bring charges based on what that grand jury, that special grand jury, was able to um, figure out, and you know we'll see. I guess it's one of those things. I think it's good sometimes that uh, investigations are done uh, not in the public eye because you know it's obviously if you're if charges are with someone, you wouldn't want that. Um, that they were under investigation. I think that is a would be a large abuse of power. It's one of my biggest complaints of the special counsel regulation is it's the only place where we name the targets of investigations publicly. Um, and so, you know, in this case, I think we're just going to have to wait a little longer to see if this uh, county prosecutor in Georgia has the, you know, the temerity or the strength to try to bring, you know, charges against uh, people up to and including, I guess, President Trump, although I would, you know, I cannot imagine, I haven't seen the report, nobody has, I cannot imagine 
what facts and circumstances they, they're trying to cobble together to bring charges against him. But, you know, these things, any more of these things don't amaze me, Rich, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, do you, would you have any sense of what type of charges they'd be trying to file? Like what possibly because he called Raffensperger because uh, because he said things needed to be recounted. Like, I'm just trying to figure out what, yeah. what on earth would they try I mean, and charge I'm, him with? I'm guessing it would be, you know, I mean, again, I, I don't know, but I, it would be some form of a you know conspiracy or an interference with an official act or some something like that and again i don't i'm not a georgia lawyer i don't know georgia law but uh, i'm guessing it would be some sort of an interference um, right this sounds reminiscent uh, to what they did with the new york city prosecutor's office with rudy giuliani which amounted to a whole lot of nothing as well exactly no this and this is the thing is you know the and and, and i think the biggest fear i have rich in all of these cases, and I and I and I know I would say this if the shoe was on the other foot um, as well, is you know we are really um, moving to a place where we're criminalizing protected constitutional speech, and you know the First Amendment is very broad, uh, and you know and 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 especially in politics and politicians are given a you know a broad um, uh, latitude. Um, in in the public discourse, and so I, I just you know would want to make sure that these cases were solid, and they're not just we don't like this person, we're going to charge them with a crime, and we know we can get a good jury that'll convict them. And that's that's what we're seeing now in in Washington D.C., and I think that's you know that does not that does not bode well uh, for the future of the republic, where you know prosecutors can bring cases in friendly jurisdictions, knowing that. Uh, while the case may not be strong, they can get a conviction. Yeah, it sounds Stalinesque, is what it sounds. It's horrible. Very, yeah, horrible. Absolutely, right. and, yeah. Well, well, I want to I want to continue our conversation with uh, Attorney General Matthew Whitaker. Uh, check out his website, by the way, Whitaker TV. And I want to take a quick break right here so we could set up the uh, the next question that I have for you, which is going to be with respect to the Supreme Court and Section Two Thirty. Uh, do they have a chance to make a change? Do they not? Don't go anywhere. We've got Matt Whitaker and me, Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night. With Rich Valdez. All right, welcome back. We're on with Attorney General Matt Whitaker. Uh, he was with the Trump administration. And my question uh, with, with respect to this case here is, what is going on with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, where um, you know there's been this fundamental uh, publisher versus platform uh, debate and now there's a case before the Supreme Court. What can you tell us about it, General? Yeah, well, the the, the, the Supreme Court hearing um, was today, and the Supreme Court is trying to decide. You know, the 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 the, the plaintiff has sued Google uh, for videos that were posted on YouTube that ultimately radicalized and led to the death of their son, and it's a tragic case. And Section 230, you know, protects online companies from things that are posted on their platforms. And I think it's a lot of it, um, you know, has, uh, has been probably stretched beyond 
what Congress intended Section 230 to cover. But, you know, the, the surprising thing in the in an ever-connected digital world, if you listen to today's arguments, was how uh, the nine Supreme Court justices don't understand how the Internet works. Um, they seem completely confused on the whole idea and the concept of how the Internet works, how users can post and all uh, content and all that, things that, you know, our generation rich, uh, you know, understands, right. I think, inherently. Um, and I think that's, you know, and, and they really seem very skeptical of dipping their toe into um, trying to change the current regulatory and legal structure of Section 230 and believe, you know, and again, we have a separation of power for a reason. You know, the, the, the Supreme Court and the courts cannot always change everything, even if it's bad law, as long as it's constitutionally passed. Um, and so, and, you know, obviously Section 230, the whole intent uh, is a protection for free speech, because uh, if you make the platforms like YouTube, for example, liable, and again, I'm not an apologist for YouTube, uh, but if you make them liable for content, you're going to have a lot more content moderation uh, going on um, right. and probably less free, free speech. speech. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a balance. Uh, it's a balance probably better done by Congress uh, than the courts. But at the same time, I think, um, you know, uh, they've used uh, the platforms like, you know, especially Twitter, and Facebook and others have used it as a sword and a shield. At the same time, for you know, taking deplatforming people on the one hand, and at the same time putting up, you know, for example, the Ayatollah of Iran, and you know, having their content available to the world. So it's it's uh, we'll see. I don't think this. I don't think the court's going to uh, throw it out, overturn it, or find it unconstitutional. So I think it's still probably best uh, modified and remedied probably by Congress. Although you know, you and I'm sure your listeners have as little faith in Congress as I do currently. Right. And, and just to, um, to, to, to zero in on this, I agree with what you're saying. And I, I think I'm just curious, um, the Biden administration's really in support of the family. That's part of the case, the Gonzalez family that where they're saying that Google lacks immunity under section two thirty. Um, isn't that the same argument that others are making? Yeah. I mean, and again, I think, uh, you know, the Biden administration uh, did come out and, you know, has has been supportive of of the family. I mean, obviously, this, you know, radicalized radicalization in the, uh, you know, religious fanaticism uh, is an area that uh, certainly, you know, you don't want everyone exposed to that, uh, especially the violent, you know, extremist uh, wing of radical Islam, because ultimately it does lead to death and destruction. And so, uh, I mean, I think there is, there, there, there has to be a line somewhere um, where uh, they can't turn a blind eye. But, you know, right now, I think uh, Section 230 is viewed as an, as an absolute immunity with, with no exceptions. You know, it's, I think it's, you know, we may get to that area of, you know, how you can't yell fire in a crowded theater uh, is kind of the, the bounds of, 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 free speech and first amendment. Um, I think we may get to that, uh, somewhere in this section two thirty discussion, but I don't know that I'm not sure that these justices are in a position to, uh, to help clarify the question based on, on how the hearing went. And, and you think that's a matter of political will? 
No, I think it's a matter of not understanding how how ah. technology works. Yeah, I think Got it's, it. I think it's not understanding the intersection of freedom of speech together with how technology works and who, you know, who whose role it is in these areas. Right. Well, that's, that's an interesting place to be because uh, then we're screwed, right? On every case, yeah, well, that's why cases go to the Supreme Court. That's why the, you know, it's why the Supreme Court takes these tough cases. And you know, again, if if Congress would do its job as well, they could help you know uh, remedy some of these inequities as well and make sure that those putting uh, you know violent uh, extremist con- uh, content on the internet also had some liability or you know could not post it in the first place, if, you know, if that's what they're trying to regulate. But again, you know, the First Amendment is, is is fairly broad, as we've talked about before. Right. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating case. You have this family saying that, you know, because of Google, our daughter is dead from ISIS terrorists. And, you know, yep. Google's saying, well, these people have a right to say whatever they want. You know, we're just a search engine. And and and, and they're saying, well, no, you're not just a search engine. You're, you're participating in this in one way or another because you didn't mm-hmm. take it down. You didn't it's moderate the content. Yeah. Right. right. It's just such a... Uh, an interesting um, um, web of events. Uh, now, I want to quickly uh, pivot to um, the work that you're doing. I know that you're, you're very busy. You're doing a lot of work with the uh, America First Policy Institute, uh, right? Is that you still there? Yep, I'm still working at AFPI and uh, really having a, a good time. I run uh, co-chair of the Center for Law and Justice. Um, working a lot on policies that support the men and women of law enforcement. You know, you're seeing uh, the radical left's policies play out in places like Austin, Texas, where you had this completely out of control, you know, street racing situation um, over the weekend. And, you know, that's because they tried to defund their police by a third and they lost a bunch of people um, and they couldn't, you know, get recruits in. And so now they're under staffed, underfunded, and, you know, and, and have They're under attack. Maintaining, yeah, maintaining law and order is very difficult in those types of jurisdictions. I saw so the video, or at least a video, of a cop retreating yeah. and retreating and retreating to a mob of, I don't know, 40, 50 people that were coming after yeah. him. And uh, it, it was scary. I was thinking if there was another mob behind him, he wasn't going to have many choices but hitting the gas. And, uh, and, and then, you know, then it's his fault. We're fighting against those policies, Rich. So, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing at AFPI and Again, we're just one of the main policy centers at America First Policy. I enjoy that work a lot. Well, keep up the good work. I hope to see you at CPAC if you're going to be there. Um, and uh, Godspeed in everything you're doing. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Ladies and gentlemen, Attorney General Matthew Whitaker, AFPI, and uh, all-around great guy. Thank you, sir, for joining us tonight. All right. Take care. You bet. All right, more to come straight ahead. We're going to get to your calls and more. Don't move a muscle. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. is America at Night with Rich Valdez. So some of the anomalies that that citizen that that called the meeting with us uh, pointed out, um, they noticed that there were about 93 people that were registered to vote or on the voter rolls. Uh, Whether they cast a ballot or not, we're not going to get into that. Just the fact that they were on the voter rolls with the birth date of 1850. Um, There were 232 people registered to vote with an address 
um, to our local prisons. Um, there were 4,144 people uh, that were 90 years old and older. Um, there were 125 people registered to vote or on the voter rolls uh, that were registered to, or their address comes back to nonprofit NGOs and different businesses. Um, there were 300 people, approximately 300 people with no first name, just a last name. Um, there were about 110 people that were possible double voters, basically the same uh, name, date of birth, address, but two different voter ID numbers. All right. Well, there seems to be a lot of incidences of people born in the 1800s that I'm guessing aren't even alive that were on the voter rolls. That's Captain Art Hardy from the San Joaquin County Sheriff's Office at a press conference last week where they found extensive issues with the voter rolls in California, in in San Joaquin County in California. And um, just another example of how, you know, we think things are going great with elections and we continue to find things when we look into them. Let us go to Jesse in Durango, California, KDGO. Jesse, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Hi, Rich. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you. Great. Um, I'm calling on the same deal as far as the voter rolls and stuff. Ancestry.com and another ancestry group were hacked in 2019 my family went back night or 15 generations and my grandfather alone came up with over 100 pages of living across the country the uh we got to figure and it has uh the names numbers phone numbers relatives addresses and everything else on the paperwork that i found of the people that have stole it and are using those names. I need to find out who he can get together as an attorney to um, go after him. Yeah. And those well, I mean, I think them. you could probably, you could probably contact local law enforcement and, you know, wherever you are, maybe go through your congressperson's office and they could give you some guidance on that. Um, it, it's, um, it's this, listen, since I've been, you know, um, a relatively young man in my twenties, I've been involved in, uh, you know, observing politics. And I can tell you that this has been a complaint um, in Hudson County, New Jersey, in Essex County, New Jersey, uh, Camden, New Jersey, and Philly, and, you know, just different places I've been. People are always complaining about how the dead vote. And uh, it's, it's a real thing. And, you know, it, it seems that in the 2020 election, when people said, oh, because dead people voted, they're like, oh, dead people don't vote. And I'm thinking, hey, dead people have been voting as long as I've been watching politics, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of the ways, like there's ballot stuffing uh, there and there's dead people. There's, you know, different ways of committing voter fraud. Uh, they're stealing ballots, right? Uh, that when they bulk drop mail ballots, uh, the, you know, there's been cases where there's, there's this group of people, I shouldn't say a group of people. There's a profession known as a politiquera, P-O-L-I-T-E-Q-U-E-R-A. And a politiquera is typically a middle-aged woman that lives in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas and works in tandem with campaigns that are corrupt and the cartels in local elections, different elections. And they basically buy these... um, mail-in ballots, and they sell them to the highest bidder 
and and this has been a thing forever. And yes, they've been arrested. Yes, they've gone to jail. There's cases and there's convictions. These are real things. And people, um, you know, could try to deny this stuff, but it's a real thing. And they don't only exist in Texas, right? They exist in lots of places. There's many ways to commit election fraud. And to suggest that there isn't any is silly. Of course, the, the caveat most people say is there's no evidence of widespread fraud. And that's a different story because, you know, typically the fraud is isolated to different districts. But uh, great point. Good luck in finding out what happened to your ancestors' voting information. And straight ahead, we're going to continue our conversation. We've got a lot to discuss. We're going to talk about what's going on Facebook. They want to start charging people. Plus, there's issues at the border. So don't go anywhere. It's Rich Valdez. Another hour coming straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. From the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program. Featuring interesting guests from around the world. And calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, by the way, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And social media is exactly what we're talking about. But if you want to call us on the old-fashioned landline, you're welcome to do so, 833-482-5337-8334. That's the number four, Valdez, V-A-L-D-E-S, 833, the number four, Valdez. Now, um, I want to talk about a couple of headlines here, right? One of the headlines that we... um, uh, we just talked a little bit about this major social media immunity case that was heard before the Supreme Court today. And they're challenging the immunity of social media platforms like Google and others uh, with respect to that case where the family saying that their daughter was killed by ISIS because of Google's inability to censor their uh, rhetoric online. And th- that case is there and there's going to be Many repercussions that come from it. I don't know if they're going to end these Section 230 uh, protections or not. Uh, and we'll get to that a little bit down the road. But uh, the other headline that's out there today in social media world is that a new service called Meta Verified and uh, uh, a relatively new service known as Twitter Blue now mark the end of free social media. I don't know if I agree with that or not, uh, but to help us make sense of it, we've got Adam Raziri. He's the co-founder and the chief marketing officer at a firm called Agency Partner Interactive. Adam, welcome to the program, sir. Hey, Rich. Good evening. You teed that up so nicely. And, you know, it it is interesting to see kind of what's going on in the world of social media because things just seem to change on a daily basis. And, you know, the the headlines, well, certainly in respect of kind of the first first, uh, story that you teed up there, uh, specific to that to that uh, lawsuit, uh, really, and Joe Biden kind of demanding an end to special immunity for social media platforms. You know, this really does kind of re-spark that conversation of Section 230. But, uh, you know, as is typical from from the left, I mean, they, they really just get all the talking points so wrong because they're sitting here pointing out uh, venom and violence of white supremacy. 
uh, instead of sitting here trying to talk about you know data protections and, and child privacy, they they really just kind of get these things wrong every time. Even if they're trying to do something positive, they just man, they just they just don't. And so you know that's that's one interesting issue. Watching Meta and you know Zuckerberg's shenanigans over there at Facebook. Uh, it's funny because when Elon Musk first launched his uh, his Twitter Blue service and the idea that a social media platform could you know earn money through subscription revenue and not just through ad sales, you know basically by monetizing their users, right? Like that was just something that just it, it enraged a lot of those who are kind of more of those legacy blue checks, right? A lot of those celebs and those elites, the 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 people of the world who are, are used to kind of being in this special social media class that actually is a right. class that sort of on most of the of the terms and conditions that that basically 99.9 percent of all the other users are forced to abide by right um, they're, they're know, allowed so to funny. lie and do whatever they want with uh, with impunity well exactly so i mean facebook once upon a time or with immunity i should say <laughs> right <laughs> well you know facebook had the central program and and that was a company that was a collection of about six million uh users who were all like basically deemed like favorable users, right? You had leftist journalists, you had athletes, celebrities, you know, like if you weren't Kim Kardashian, you couldn't be in the, in the center group. Uh, and, and those people were allowed to sidestep the AI based uh, uh, monitoring and censoring of posts. And, you know, Rich, the one thing that really bothers me about Facebook and it's kind of funny to hear Zuckerberg talking about how this, this new subscription revenue is going to help him improve customer service from Facebook. And, and I'll tell you why in a second, but, it's 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 just like it's interesting to see that they're trying to sort of say that because the company is going to have revenue from this verified service that they'll be able to provide better customer service to their average user. Man, every election, the last certainly the last three elections, uh, my Facebook account gets mysteriously kicked off the Facebook platform. I was kicked off in September, and I wasn't able to get back on the platform until uh, beginning of February this year. You know, Facebook does not want people who have a voice to to spread that or to spread to spread important information if it is information that defies their narrative. And and so, interestingly enough, we've we've heard confessions from people like Jen Psaki out of the White House back when she was, you know, leading up the the Ministry of Information, you might call it. Um, mm-hmm. We've heard confessions uh, that on a daily basis, at one point, they were working with social media leaders to identify accounts that were deemed unsavory and to shut those accounts down. And, you know, when Elon Musk bought what he called a crime scene over there at Twitter, I mean, which it's funny, but he's also not wrong. Uh, you realize that, wait a minute, this guy, Jim Baker, uh, by the way, the, yeah, the Jim Baker from the FBI who was working with Sussman to, you know, spread right, the from Crossfire Hurricane, <laughs> that, that guy. Yeah, like, oh, that's the guy who's now leading up Twitter legal and working with his old buddies at the DOJ on a daily, weekly basis to make sure that, you know, people like you and people like me are not able to share things with, with people who want to hear what we have to say. Even the New York Post, can you imagine that? A, a media outlet that was founded by Alexander Hamilton spreading a story that would have influenced the 2020 election. The Hunter Biden Oldest Bob paper Bob in America. Exactly, exactly. It's just, it's absurd to see the injustices that have really kind of hit our country. And there are real real consequences that we have to reconcile now because as we look to 24 and man we barely got past the midterms you know as we look to 24 we have to ensure that the people are able to be informed before they make a voting decision and the the answer to concerns of well biden's concerns right like he's he's concerned about (laughs) the venom and violence of white supremacy on social media the way you solve bad speech like like hate speech is with more speech right let let people that have something positive to say 
come out and be vocal and expose those who are saying stupid things, right? If you're going to be stupid on social media, everyone's going to know that you're going to be stupid on social media and they will think a certain thing about you. Whereas if you're going to be a genius on social media, you're going to share, you know, just profound thoughts and, and, and just think cool things that you're thinking about. People are going to start to think that, oh, wow, this, this person has something to say. I'm going to follow them. And meanwhile, I'm going to mute these people who have terrible things to say. More censorship is not the answer to, to these problems here. It's, it it's more free is. speech. Yeah, exactly. Let me remind everybody who we're on with. We're on with Adam Rizieri, co-founder and chief marketing officer at a firm called Agency Partner Interactive. We're talking about social media censorship. And uh, and there's some disinformation that goes along with this, too, that I want to jump into. And a little bit more on that lawsuit, uh, plus the latest with charging people. And uh, even the, the ones that don't choose to pay, I mean, it, you just you get pushed down a little bit. You're not as popular according right. to the way they sell it, but you're still able to uh, to participate. So I don't know if it's the end of free social media, but we're going to continue this conversation. If you want to give us a call, 833, the number 4, Valdez is the phone number, 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S. Our guest, Adam Raziri, co-founder, chief marketing officer at a firm called Agency Partner Interactive. You can check him out at agencypartner.com. Adam Raziri, I wanted to um, get your take on a, on a story I read uh, in the last week or so um, uh, titled Disinformation Inc. Left-wing groups funneled millions to entities that were blacklisting conservative news groups. And um, this was uh, part of a Washington Examiner, uh, excuse me, investigative series on disinformation, tracking organizations that are secretly blacklisting and taking the names of people to defund conservative media outlets. And we've seen this happen with OAN, and now it's happening with Newsmax by way of AT&T. And um, this global disinformation index that was brought about by the State Department, it was, it was backed by the State Department, was using a group funded by Soros. And, I mean, none of this comes as a surprise. Obviously, it's always the same, it's always the same bad guys, right? It's always the same bad guys. It's always a different story with the same bad guys, just like we just talked about with Jim Baker. Uh, but what's your take on this? Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned Soros, right? And I, I remember this cartoon from the 90s, Inspector Gadget, and, you know, there was that evil guy who sat Gadget. in the chair... Right. And there was, there was the bad guy who sat in the chair with his metal arm petting the cat. And that's right. George Soros, right? <laughs> and so, you know, to, to see what's going on here behind the scenes, it should shock nobody. Now we have um, one of my favorite guys from Missouri, Eric Schmidt, who obviously I think as attorney general did great things that I hope he'll do uh, yeah. even better things as a senator. And he, he was one of those attorneys general who, who really led the fight against the collusion that was taking place between the big tech companies being like all of them, Amazon, Google, Apple, Meta and our government. I mean, there's a there's a lawsuit right now where the, uh, these attorney generals identified uh, federal officials across 11 different federal agencies that were working with groups like the groups that you mentioned. These groups that were creating these basically these blacklists, these li these these lists that would be used to literally push people away from the mainstream and to silence people from being able to connect with with everyday Americans. Um, and so you have this activity being kind of waged by 
these surrogates of the Biden administration, these surrogates of the DNC. And it's it's pervasive. I mean, 11 federal agencies were identified uh, by by Schmidt when he was an attorney general and, and several other AGs. Uh, and I'm talking about the, the FDA, the FBI, the State Department, the Treasury Department. I mean, we're talking about a censorship enterprise here. And what does that sound like? It sounds like communist Russia. It sounds like Soviet Russia. And that is not what America is all about. And that's not what we're supposed to be about. We have to find ways to make sure that those who are basically trusted with powers that are public in nature, right, whether it's a a politician or a bureaucrat, we have to find ways to make sure that these people actually have the best interest of our country at heart. But unfortunately, it seems like they have this, this desire, this thirst to aggregate power by abusing the power that we trust them with. And, and that's a terrible thing. So to, to sit here now and to, to reconcile the fact that there are conservative voices that are being added to lists and they're being systematically blocked from social media, from banking institutions, uh, it, it, it's, it's really tyranny at, at, at its best, right? And so that's something that we have to stand against. Social media is nothing more than a tool, and it's a tool that's been weaponized by one side of the political elite in our country. Uh, and so now it's time that we, we really – I think diversify the, the distribution of power so that both sides have an equal voice. At the end of the day, whatever whatever solution comes from the need for big for for, for um, I, I guess kind of a new operating model for these these big tech companies. At the end of the day, neither the left nor the right should be 100% satisfied. We need something in the middle that's going to kind of anger everybody, but it's going to work um, and yeah. allow for constructive criticism and friction to actually exist. Because right now. Not enough friction exists. You have a bunch of bobbleheads who basically say, you know, yes to whatever is coming down from the DNC. And, you know, as a result, you know, our economy is in the tanks. It costs $10 to go buy eggs. Gas is super expensive. (laughs) There are very simple, logical solutions to a lot of the problems we're facing as a country today. But none of those solutions are ever going to make it to the surface if we're being gaslit at every corner. Yeah. You know, Adam Raziri, I think it's you made a series of great points. And one of the things I just want to. Uh, just add to is uh, when you mentioned these federal agencies, there's also, um, you know, a couple of names on this list that I'm looking at uh, from the GDI, the let's see what that stood for, the Global Disinformation um, something or other. Uh, global rings the bell, right? Ding, 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 yeah, global. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> global Disinformation Index. And the Disinformation Index, Inc. is the U.S. version of it. One is from the U.K. and whatever. But uh, listen to some of the um, the outlets that are on their blacklist. And I just think it's, it's hysterical. The American Spectator, Newsmax, The Federalist, The American Conservative, one American News, The Blaze, The Daily Wire, Real Clear Politics, Reason, Reason Magazine, and The New York Post. I, you, you look at this, yeah. and uh, I mean, it's it's just and like <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so yeah, I'm on Newsmax once a week. So I'm just thinking, this is an yeah. incredible way to really just silence every last voice that you just don't care about because they say, you know, I don't like your opinion. You have to shut up. I mean, if this isn't right. um, a, a Stalinesque way of dealing with things. Um, I, I don't know what is. Right, very, very much so. And, and you know, Rich, you're you're a, you're a fantastic conservative influencer and thought leader. And one of the things oh, that I advise everyone, well, and that's just the truth, right? You're doing great things for the country by saying things that need to be said fearlessly. And one of the things that I always advise people who are trying to build a following, you have to own your marketing assets. And by that, I mean collect email addresses, have direct ways to engage the people that you want to connect with, and then 
message them proactively, right? Email campaigns still work, and there's still a strong way to pull people directly to your website or directly to an online property that you know is safe because the fact is, is you might have a Facebook page that can be taken down at any time. You might have a Twitter page that can be taken down at any time. Thankfully, Elon Musk is, is, is here, and I think he's doing some good things. But the bottom line is, is, is we have really very little control over our world, and that's a sad thing to realize. So if you have, if you have data that's yours, if you have direct access to your customers or to your, to your audience, message them proactively and bring them to a place like your actual website, your domain, um, and, and connect with them there and, and just build a relationship directly instead of really relying on you know, Facebook to potentially give you impressions and clicks on your, on your messaging, right? Like you have to buy, a, just, just to connect with grandma and grandpa now on Facebook, you got to pay for a verified service so that they'll maybe see the post that you put out about your four month old birthday, right? Like that's, yeah. that's absurd. Facebook used to be a place to connect with friends and family. And now, you know, it's it's really just a place That's how they where they sucked us in. Is exactly right, exactly right. And more than half of American adults today go to Facebook for their news. I mean, what could go wrong, right? like that's just the reality we live in you know you know the the whole the whole facebook the meta verified thing is kind of funny too because you know this is we're at at a time and place now when facebook just laid off i say facebook right i mean meta they laid off eleven thousand employees their revenue is down big time and and they're they're, they're platforms that i know right go go broke (laughs) that's a true thing you know, and now we have Instagram fairly stagnant in terms of user growth. And, you know, the Chinese Communist yeah. Party is loving the fact that TikTok's got a billion users. So, you know, I think Meta better hope that we do kick TikTok out of the country. And, you know, maybe they'll be able to get a few people over from TikTok. But, you know, I, I, I do see this as probably a, a play that's not going to work out that well for Zuckerberg. Um, you, there's not a whole lot of value adds through Instagram uh, and through Facebook being offered by this verification service. And frankly, people are kind of clued into what's going on, right? They know that Zuckerberg likes to meddle in elections. He spent $418 million trying to get Joe Biden elected. Nothing That's to it. see here, guys. You know, <laughs> at least that much, right? That's what we know. Uh, and that was all through the veil of these, of these nonprofits. And oh, by the way, the people over at Meta making censorship decisions, there's one name in particular that you guys should know about. The name is Mick Clegg. And that's a guy who spent a couple decades over in the British Parliament as a lawmaker. So, you know, that guy is a far left lawmaker who's now over here controlling the dialogue of the United States of America. I mean, the whole phrase, the redcoats are coming, that was a long time ago, but it seems like it's kind of coming back. <laughs> that sounds like a book in the making. Oh, yeah. my goodness. All right, folks, we're on with Adam Raziri, co-founder and uh, chief marketing officer at a firm called Agency Partner. You can check Agency Partner Interactive and their website, agencypartner.com. Adam, in the um, minute that we have, or not even a minute, about 50 seconds, uh, tell us a little bit about Agency Partner. Yeah, Agency Partner uh, Interactive, we are a full-service digital agency. Uh, We've worked with a lot of organizations, frankly, that have been targeted by the woke, the woke far left, uh, walkaway campaign, International Republican Institute. Uh, we, we love to work with people who are trying to make sure that they are cancel proof. Uh, we also work with small business owners that are looking to just survive and thrive. And we got, we got some of our, our best customers through COVID successfully. And, and that was not easy, but we did so despite mandated shutdowns and things of that nature. So if you're looking for excellent digital marketing, web design, or, or a really cool mobile app, check out agencypartner.com. What a good commercial right on time. Adam Rosieri, co-founder, CMO at Agency Partner. Go to agencypartner.com to learn more. Always a pleasure to have you on. I appreciate your insight, brother. Hey, thanks, Rich. You bet. 
All right, folks, more to come straight ahead. We've got Todd Benzman coming up. What's going on with the border? Border crisis. I need a meal. America. Welcome back. Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S. And as promised, we're going to have a discussion on the border, uh, specifically illegal immigration at the southern border. And just so you know, it's becoming a huge issue at the northern border. There's this crazy figure that I saw, something about an 800 percent increase in uh, in border crossings and things are just out of control. So I want to break things down to to everybody listening with an expert. Our expert right now is Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, Todd Benzman. He's the author of a brand new book, Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. Todd Benzman, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Good to be here. Yes, sir. So tell us um, a little bit um, of, uh, I guess, What's the current snapshot? I mean, I'm looking at these headlines with this 800% increase that I just find, I've I've never heard of such numbers. So, I mean, what can you tell us? Well, you know, one thing about the northern border is that when you have a small number and it increases by a small amount, you can get what looks like a massive percentage increase. But uh, I recently looked at those numbers and you know they're they're really they're really tiny uh, compared to what's happening at the southern border. Uh, the numbers on the northern border of, of increase is something like, uh, as I recall, it's like in the hundreds, uh, not not really even into the thousands. But I mean, there is an increase. There's obviously something else going on up there uh, with uh, regard to the. Uh, I think it has to do with Trudeau's. Um, visa waiver policy uh, for Mexicans and Bangladeshis and some other nationalities where they can just fly over the U.S. into Quebec and then sometimes they'll cross over the the northern border and get in that way. But the, the total numbers on the northern border are really minuscule compared to what's going on at the southern border where just sure. in December, we had 250,000 apprehensions in a single month. Yes, in Yeah, it, it, I mean, To me, it seems like th- there's so much happening at the southern border. They're saying, let's, let's try our chances at the northern border because it's so hard down here. You know, and not because they can't get in, but maybe because there's too many people ahead of them. But the, the, the southern border seems so broken, Todd Benzman. Right. Well, so the numbers are a- absolutely ionospheric and historic for the country. And just to give you some sense of perspective for that, you know, typically in a, in a, in a, a year, we, we border patrol might apprehend somewhere in the neighborhood of 300, 400, 500,000. That sounds like a lot, 
but it it rarely was more than you know four hundred thousand in a year of of times that that border patrol actually laid hands on an illegal border jumper. Uh, when Biden entered office, uh, they were looking at I mean the Trump policies had brought those numbers to about thirty thousand a month. Uh, within I'd say a month of Biden taking office that was already in the uh, hundreds of thousands so it just took off went straight i mean 90 degrees straight up and never looked back it broke every record in the u.s history books on apprehensions uh we're looking at about uh 1.7 million in the first year 2021 apprehensions and in the second year, 2.4 million more uh, for 4 million plus apprehensions in just 24 months. And just this year so far, fiscal year, it's over 850,000. I mean, the numbers are just beyond anything in the American experience. And that's just the ones we know about, the apprehensions where Border Patrol laid hands on human beings. Uh, there are an estimated additional 1.2 to 1.5 million gotaways that just got through into the American interior. So now you're looking at, you know, uh, you know, millions and millions of people just pouring over the border, either turning themselves in for processing into the country or just jetting through and getting into the interior where all deportations have been ended almost all deportations have been ended. So um, this is all a, a, a result of policy choices. Uh, as I write in the book and, um, you know, support elaborately with reporting, the immigrants saw that Joe Biden uh, was going to let them in and they knew it, and they were there waiting for him on Inauguration Day for when Trump left because he still had his his um, CBP uh, front line there blocking and deterring. But on Inauguration Day, the, um, the immigrants were waiting, and the administration exempted uh, family units, um, unaccompanied minors, pregnant women from the pandemic rule of pushbacks that they were doing. And when they exempted those categories, those categories are the ones that just poured in and were immediately conveyor belted processed into the American interior. And everybody downstream heard about this and came to from all over the world, pouring, pouring through by the hundreds of thousands, 200,000 a month, 250,000 a month, whatever, uh, in an unending onslaught over that border. It's, this is, these are like, um, these numbers don't fit in my head. I mean, it's just crazy to think that we've gotten to this far and, um, we've come this far, I should say, and that we, we aren't taking any action to, to remedy it. So when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about how you got to a lot of this information, kind of the approach you took in the book 
and what some of your recommendations might be on, on fixing this. Uh, folks, we're on with Todd Bensman. He's Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. I am Rich Valdez, and we're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, welcome back. We're on with Todd Benzman, national, Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies and the author of the new book, Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. I recommend getting a copy of the book, maybe get another copy to give away to somebody. And Todd Benzman, let's talk a little bit about... Um, your uh, your travels and the interviews that you conducted to put the book together. Sure. So, you know, my background, uh, my, well, my first career was as a journalist. I was a, I'm a, a trained, classically trained reporter, undergraduate degree in journalism and, and one of my master's degrees in journalism, too. And I worked 23 years as a newspaper reporter for places like Dallas Morning News. So, it's kind of in my blood. Now, then after that, I, I was an intelligence officer for the Texas Department of Public Safety for almost a decade. So uh, now I'm kind of coming back full circle. Uh, so the way I approached this was, you know, the, the, the pursuit of primary sources that are in the middle at the heart of this story, which is the immigrants the people that are coming and why they're coming and what they say uh, and how, how they're traveling. And in order to get at them, I had to spend a lot of time the last two years on the migrant trails from uh, Panama and Costa Rica uh, to Guatemala and all over Southern Mexico. And of course, all over our own border from, Tijuana on the Pacific coast, all the way to Matamoros on the Texas Gulf coast, uh, and everywhere in between interviewing immigrants, every chance I got. And so a lot of the book is reporting based, uh, primary sources from the immigrants and what they say, but also a lot of time with border patrol agents and CBP inspectors on the bridges and officials and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's, it's very well sourced over the last couple of years. And essentially what they tell me, I mean, in, in, a, in a nutshell, <laughs> uh, is, you know, I always ask, well, why, why are you coming? What, you know, what changed uh, to, to have you uproot from all over the world to come to the border? And uh, universally, the answer is, well, you know, all our friends and neighbors are getting in and all our relatives are getting in. So we figured we could get in too they're letting us in. They're letting us in. So of course we're coming. And, you know, one of the great, uh, maybe unknown, even if it's obvious calculus, uh, calculi, I don't know, calculuses, uh, that they make <laughs> is, is when, uh, you know, to, when you're going to come to the border from a place like Mauritania or Africa or the middle East, they're coming from all over the world, the greatest percentage ever, uh, 40 per 43% 40, 
of everybody hitting that border is not from Mexico or Central America. They're from 150 countries around the world. Um, is It's expensive. You have to pay smugglers and you have to sustain yourself on the, on the journey. It might take a month or two months or three or more. And so you want to know that your money is going to pay off with an entry into the United States and a stay where you can work off the debt or whatever you, you know, recoup your money multiple times over. That's the only calculus that matters. Right. There has to be some level and, of ROI. Uh, exactly. I think I actually use that return on investment. And so uh, the Biden administration made their return on investment almost guaranteed because he was letting almost everybody in. Uh, if you brought a child, you were in. If you, if you sent a child uh, or sent for a child, that, that child was in, guaranteed. Uh, and there were so many coming in that, 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 that they were letting in that the Border Patrol had to be redeployed to processing duty, which less, left vast swaths of the border wide open to runners, uh, to people who, would, who wanted to get away, who knew that they would be returned because a lot of them had criminal histories that were disqualifying and they'd get them deported. Uh, and so the Biden administration, one of the great, uh, you know, this is not a big mystery, but, you know, one of the very significant things that he did at the very beginning was that he ended deportation from the interior of the country uh, your odds of getting deported, uh, even now, uh, are, are almost nothing. You, I mean, there it's nil. And so if you can run and make it past the border patrol in the trunk of a car or on foot or however, uh, past the hundred mile mark, you are in, you had a and good shot. you still are in, you mm -hmm. have a great shot of, uh, working and getting that smuggling money back and all the rest. And, so there's the two looks at the border crisis is you have just hundreds of thousands giving up, giving themselves up because they know they're going to be processed in. And then you have this runner uh, situation, about a million point two, a million uh, point five that we know of that have that have run through and into the American interior, as I mentioned earlier. How many of these people are terrorists? Well, we have we have a beat on that. Uh, I know that's a kind of a a, a, a bugaboo type issue, you know, terrorists are cr coming. But uh, one interesting thing about this crisis is that we know that in fiscal 2022, the Border Patrol apprehended 98 people who were actually already on the FBI's terrorism watch list. Right. Yeah, that's why I asked. Um, we've had, I know we've caught some in yeah. the past, and uh, I'm guessing if those guys came, word gets around, other bad guys are going to come. Well, yeah, absolutely. There, There is a court case. And by the way, we've had 51 just in the last four months apprehended. And if you take those, you know, in the context of, you know, a million and a half gotaways, you have to figure, you know, we didn't catch all of them, you know. I mean, right. there must have been some of them got through and maybe a lot of them got through maybe twice as many got, who knows? Uh, but, uh, 
but to answer your your question, I mean, there there is a national security component to all of this because uh, these are largely strangers coming in. We don't know who any of these people are, uh, especially the gotaways. Uh, there's going to be a high uh, probability of, of uh, you know, criminal histories on a lot of the folks that got away uh, and maybe even a lot of the folks that are turning themselves in. Those are people are going to be coming into the interior and staying because we don't deport. All right, folks, we're on with Todd Bensman, Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, author of the brand new book, Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. Make sure you check out the book. Uh, He's going to continue with us. We are going to take a quick pause and come right back. The phone number, 833-482-5337-833, the number four, Valdez. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. I want to listen to you, Rich, all the time. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, we have a question for Todd Bensman. Let's go to Doug in Avon, Minnesota. K-N-S-I. Doug, you're on with Rich Valdez and Todd Bensman. Go right ahead, sir. Thank you. I have a quick question about uh, presidential executive orders. If we bring back a Republican or conservative president in 2024... Would he, could he, by executive order, shut the border off completely and deploy the National Guard to stop some of this illegal stuff you've been talking about? Thank you, Doug. Todd Bensman? Well, there are, for one thing, the, uh, what the, the president has laws on the books that, that he or she is required to follow, good laws that require the detention and deportation of everyone who crosses illegally. Uh, the problem is that uh, there's an asylum law that, pro- that provides a, uh, uh, an exit ramp from this, and it's that asylum law that is massively abused. Uh, I have a 10,000-word chapter in the book called Insane Asylum that presents hmm. – uh, extensive evidence of mass asylum fraud that's going on with that system where economic, ineligible economic uh, migrants are able to game that system to get into the country forever. Uh, and of course, the migrant advocacy industrial complex out there pushes this constantly uh, to make it available to the entire world. Uh, but what Trump did was he uh, did uh, uh, a series of executive orders and policies that took away the incentive of that. One of them was called Remain in Mexico. Mm, MPP policy, uh, because, right? Yeah. That's right. That was, uh, that was a good example. Uh, it was so objectionable to the far left, uh, political left in this country, that, that it was a major campaign uh, promise of the Biden administration, of the Biden uh, campaign, and then the administration 
to do away with that on day one, and they did on the very first day uh, they got rid of that. And the reason it was so effective is because uh, no, nobody, none of these migrants are coming uh, or illegal immigrants are mm-hmm. coming to the uh, to, to live the great Mexican dream. You know, they don't want to wait in Mexico. They wanted to wait in the U.S. Right, the American dream. Scott. 100 percent that would have to todd benzman we got to leave it here the music means they're kicking me out todd benzman from the center for immigration studies grab his book overrun how joe biden unleashed the greatest border crisis in u.s history thank you todd for being with us i hope to have you back soon thank you for having me you bet more to come straight ahead don't go anywhere open phones is coming up From the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program. Featuring interesting guests from around the world. And calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there and good evening. What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S. It's hour number three of America at Night. I am your host, Rich Valdez. Our telephone number is 833-482-5337. 833-the number four, Valdez. That's my last name. And that's Valdez with an S. You can also get me on all of the social media, at Rich Valdez with an S. And there's a number of things I want to talk to you about in this hour. I want to recap, of course, what we talked about earlier. Let's see. Where do we start? We talked about it. Malcolm X a little bit. I want to get back into that a little bit, maybe. And the uh, the overarching uh, racialization of of our society. Uh, I also want to talk a little bit about our conversation on immigration. We had some really good uh, conversation on social media and social media censorship and these court cases, uh, in particular the the one court case that's out today. And of course, the uh, where did it go? It is escaping me. Oh, the uh, conversation that we had with uh, former uh, Attorney General Matt Whitaker, where we were talking about how the Biden administration is trying to revamp the the policies with respect to pardons. So we could talk about that. But I want to talk about a story that I've got right here, which is with respect to the Taliban. This is interesting. This is ABC 15 News, WPDE. Listen to this. Taliban bans condoms and birth control, calling their use a Western conspiracy. The Taliban is banning these things and other forms of birth control in at least two Afghanistan cities, calling all of these uh, contraceptions, excuse me, contraceptions a Western conspiracy to control the Muslim population, according to multiple reports. Now, the the Guardian from the UK is reporting that the Taliban has been going door to door. No condoms. No condoms. <laughs> they were going door to door and uh, threatening midwives and ordering pharmacies to clear their shelves of all birth control medicines and devices in Kabul and Mazar Sharif. Wow. 
store, uh, one store owner told the media outlet that the Taliban visited his establishment armed with guns and told him not to sell contraceptives. Wow. Uh, here's a quote. It says, they're regularly checking in pharmacies in Kabul, and we have stopped selling the products, the store owner told The Guardian in UK. A midwife also said that she was threatened, saying that the Taliban instructed her to not promote the Western concept of controlling population and this unnecessary work. It's one of the latest restrictions the group has imposed on their people in Afghanistan. The Taliban, which also refers to itself by its state name, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, is a Diabandi Islamic fundamentalist Pushtun nationalist militant political movement in Afghanistan. I can't believe I said all those words. The group is known for restricting human rights, such as banning women and girls to receive an education after the sixth grade from working as well as preventing them from visiting gyms and parks. In January, Deputy Secretary General Amina Muhammad, a former Nigerian cabinet minister and a Muslim, said she met with Taliban ministers to try and reverse their crackdown on Afghan women and, and Afghan girls. And she urged Muslim countries to help her with this uh, push towards getting the the, uh, Taliban to listen to what she had to say, moving from the 13th century into the 21st century. That's a quote from her. (laughs) Now, let's see. While the Taliban was formed in 1994, it was overthrown after a U.S. invasion, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's the rest of it. Listen, you know, they give you that one sentence at the end to kind of clarify. We all know who the Taliban is. Just like we all know who Al Sharpton is and who Benjamin Crump are. These are not advocates for society that are performing some sort of public good. These are race-baiting race hustlers that are making a living off of tragedy. In in, in Sharpton's case, tragedy that's invented half the time. I remember, uh, as you know, I worked for uh, Project Veritas for a couple of years. And we had a a uh, undercover reporter embedded in a group where, uh, you know, there's a Black Lives Matter rally. And Erica Gardner, she was the daughter of Eric Gardner, the guy who famously said, I can't breathe, and and was, you know, died in a police chokehold. Uh, He he, he died, and uh, horribly so. But the, the daughter was was protesting. And in conversation with the Project Veritas reporter, they asked her, you know, what do you think motivates Al Sharpton? And she said, he don't care about me or my father. He just cares about the money. And, you know, rubbed her fingers together, you know, making this sign. And this got caught on video, and it made the cover of the New York Post saying Sharpton only cares about the money. Now, again, that's not me saying it. This is not my conjecture. This is not my speculation. This is the daughter of Eric Gardner, Erica Gardner who later herself passed away, very unfortunately, at a young age. She was saying it, and many have since. Let's talk about Tawana Brawley, right, and how fake that was. So, I mean, there's definitely a a case to be made for people that are, 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 you know, pushing these narratives. And I think the Taliban is, uh, you know, they're not uh, race hustlers. These people are religion hustlers, and they, they, they prostitute uh, an otherwise decent faith, and they turn it into something radical, something that it, I, I don't believe it was ever intended to be. 
right? I don't think they were supposed to go door to door with guns drawn to the bodega, to the pharmacy, to wherever they had to go and say, hey, look, you can't sell, you know, rubbers to, to housewives. You can't sell, you know, uh, whatever, whatever type of contraception it was. This is absolutely insane. Let's go to Isaac in Lorain, Ohio, W-E-O-L. Go right ahead, sir. Oh, good day. I think sometimes you're giving Al Sharpton and Crump them a, a bad name. Hey, the, most of these crimes would be unknown if these people wouldn't advocate uh, what you know, uh, what they was doing. And I like to say to you, uh, Puerto Rico, 50 years ago, the Navy was having controlled bombings over there, disturbing the people all nights of our. And Al Sharpton went over there and stayed two months in jail to stop it. And yet you you, you ought to start, you ought to give these guys a little more credit than you do, man. You know. And I'm gonna say something like this. You brown culture of people who come out of South America, you never have been on the slave. Puerto Rico's not in South America. Come on, Isaac. We're talking about either grab a globe or get a map. I'm gonna say right here. You 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 never been on the fascism and corruption have uh, hindered. That's why you at the border of Mexico. Hold on. Let's slow down. Let's slow down. Hold on a second. You said I've never experienced fascism and corruption. Is that what you said? Yeah, that's, I'm just saying. That is 100% correct, sir, because I'm an American. People from Puerto Rico are born Americans. We haven't experienced tyranny. We haven't experienced fascism. We haven't experienced major corruption. Well, now in Puerto Rico, it's very majorly corrupt. Uh, but if you're trying to lump the people from the Caribbean, the Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Jamaicans in the same place as the Mexicans, then you can do that. But those are North Americans. The South Americans uh, would be, you know, Colombians and Venezuelans. I think you're talking about people from Central America, maybe like El Salvador, uh, Guatemala, Honduras, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's what happens when you hit them with a little logic. They, they, their heads explode and they hang up on you. I didn't even have to hang up on him. They hung up on me because they don't like the truth. Anyway, we will continue the, the conversation. Uh, I do appreciate the dissent in his call. If there's anybody else who wants to argue with me, feel free. 833-482-5337. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Now, 833-4-Valdez. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-Valdez. That's Valdez with an S. All right, welcome back. Uh, the phone number, 833-482-5337. the number four Valdez, and that's Valdez with an S. Or get at me on the social media, at Rich Valdez. I'm looking forward to your comments. Now, listen to this. The Pentagon has a report of a leak from a military email server. The uh, Department of Defense U.S. Special Operations Command launched an investigation this week following a report that said that the unit had exposed had an exposed server that was leaking sensitive but unclassified emails online. USO, USOO, USSOCOM, I don't even, how, how would you say that? USOCOM? USOCOM is a unit within the Department of Defense that conducts and oversees special operations in branches of the military, including the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and the Air Force. The open server was secured on Monday after being exposed for the past two weeks, according to TechCrunch, which was the first to report the leak. 
the uh, a security error left the server without a password, according to TechCrunch, which means that anyone with the internet could access the data via the server's IP address. The U.S. government, folks, uh, the uh, spokesman Ken McGraw told TechCrunch on Tuesday that there is no sign that someone hacked the unit's information systems. A spokesperson for U.S. Cyber Command said that the, the following statement, listen to this. As a matter of practice and operational security, we do not comment on the status of our networks and systems. Our defensive cyber operators are proactively scanning and mitigating the networks as they feel fit. It continues. They sh- uh, Should any incidents be discovered during these regular operations, we fully mitigate, protect, and defend our networks and systems. Any information or insight that is shared with relevant agencies and partners Uh, will be shared when it's appropriate. Now, this server housed massive amounts of data that contained sensitive information, including personal and health information of federal employees seeking security clearances, according to the magazine. Uh, Anurag Sen is a security researcher and reportedly found the open server over the weekend and alerted the news organization, which then alerted the agency. So that's what's going on with the Pentagon. And my thoughts... Uh, are are we going to? Uh, is this a thing? Right? Is this? Should we look at this as just like saying, "Oh, look, we have a problem here where we we don't know uh, how this happened." It's you know, it's just we we had a a, a a data breach, right? Or is somebody? You know, I, I don't know why, but I I always err on the side of. Somebody did it on purpose. Somebody left this network open on purpose so that, you know, perhaps somebody could find it. I think this is why. Uh, of all places to put classified documents that you're not even supposed to have, Joe Biden left them in his garage next to his Corvette in the house where Hunter Biden lived for $50,000 a month rent, right? Because it just, it was worth four or 5000 a month, but he was paying $50,000. So I think, you know, when you put all those pieces together, you can't help but think, hmm, sounds like somebody probably did this on purpose. And and that's my thinking of it. So we will uh, we will see how that how that goes. Uh, now there's another story I wanted to share with you about children, children that have severe mental illness who continually go missing from a Michigan psychiatric hospital because they're escaping. Three different escapes occurred in January alone. Five total patients have escaped overall, and this is in Northville Township, Michigan. According to WXYZ, Michigan's only state-run psychiatric hospital for kids reserved for patients with the most severe mental illnesses has experienced a surge of patients escaping in just this last month. Five patients uh, in total have escaped from Hawthorne Center, which occurred in January, excuse me, in January, with some of those patients now facing possible criminal charges as a result of their conduct once they left the hospital. For uh, some of the children that are battling the most severe mental illnesses, there, there's nowhere else for them to go. And this is the most vital hospital for them in Northville Township. Now, uh, Channel 7 Action News reported that the waiting list to be admitted to the Hawthorne Hospital is usually several months long. The children were treated and are in need of urgent round-the-clock care. Almost always, says the uh, mental health advocate, Marianne Huff, that they pose a danger to themselves or others, and that's why they're admitted. Uh, starting fires in their family home, 
threatening their parents and their siblings are just some of the things that Huff listed uh, as behaviors of the many patients that they admit there to the hospital uh, and, of course, trying to hang themselves and overdosing themselves. So those are the types of mental illnesses that these kids are facing, yet they continually escape. And as hard as it is to get into Hawthorne Center, some patients have found it very easy to get out. (laughs) Fourteen different patient escapes have been reported since 2020, according to police records obtained by Channel 7 Action News. Uh, Now, some juvenile patients were missing for more than an hour. On multiple occasions, canine units needed to be called in to help search for patients who had disappeared. Channel 7 Action News obtained nearly a dozen calls to 911 over the last two years, where staff requested law enforcement's help in locating the patients. One of the patients just jumped the fence, one staffer reported. In another, uh, in another call, Hawthorne employee can be heard telling the 911 operator, uh, where'd she go? Where'd she go? In reference to a missing female patient, the other one saying, I don't know where she went, the colleague. Wow. Uh, that's what's going on there. And uh, in the three escapes in January, they were especially troubling because according to sources, some of the patients have already escaped more than once. Many of these violent escapes occurred uh, on January 31st after one teen patient was able to gain a hold of, of a staff member's keys. Well, that explains a little bit of why they're leaving. Uh, he left along with two other patients. Oh, so not, thanks for leaving the keys behind, pal. The three patients traveled a mile down Haggerty Road before entering a gas station in Livonia. Surveillance video shows one of the patients standing at the counter trying to buy vaping supplies. Now, when the clerk was asked uh, for, when the clerk asked them for ID, the patient is seen moving behind the counter, then throws a punch before trying to steal products that are on a shelf. The two scuffle, more punches are thrown before the clerk calls 911. Wow. I mean, this is pretty heavy-duty stuff here. And uh, a clerk then called 911 reporting that someone was trying to rob the gas station. Fighting and yelling can be heard in the background. Seconds later, on the other side of the counter, another patient begins to fight with a second employee. That patient didn't have a weapon, uh, but the man he was fighting with did. Licensed to carry a concealed pistol, he later told police that he nearly used it. He said, I pulled it out, kept it in the holster, though. The employee said, according to police body camera recordings, because I felt like he might be a kid. Both gas station employees sustained minor injuries. It could have been a huge tragedy, said Ali Saad, who owns the gas station. I really think that something has to be done about this. The patients who came to Hawthorne to help stabilize their behavior would be handcuffed and are now facing potential criminal charges. So, hmm, interesting, huh? Uh, And here's the final quote here. It says, um, if there wasn't another person here, God knows what this guy could have done, said Mr. Saad. There's knives here. There's things here that he could have used to create some great bodily harm. No bueno, my friends, no bueno. Now, the biggest problem... Contributing to patient escapes, according to employees, is that the hospital is understaffed. I'd say it's because somebody left the keys out, and that's why they got away. But today, there's 91 vacancies at this hospital, and uh, they're also looking for 27 nurses and 37 child care workers. So things are not going well. Check the hospital staff before you leave your loved ones there. Otherwise, they might escape. You might get them right back. Don't go anywhere. It's Open Phone America, 833-4-Valdez. Give us a call. 
now. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. It is Rich Valdez. I do identify as the man right here on this radio program, and my pronouns are El Macho. Now we're going to get to your calls. Uh, It's Open Phone America, started by Larry King back in 1978, continued by Jim Bohannon for three decades, and who would I be to stop such a wonderful progression? Let us go to Melissa in Guttenberg, New Jersey, WFAS. Go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hi, El Macho. That is me. (laughs) I just had to call in. I just love, you know, what what you're doing here. But I wanted to touch on the mental health uh, topic you just touched on, because as you were speaking, I was just thinking about and you ended it, you know, with speaking about how many people they need to hire in that hospital, which probably speaks to a lot as to why. You know, they're so easily escaping. I'm sure there's probably not enough eyes on them. And I think that's something that really needs to be focused on. Um, I mean, because clearly if they're in a mental health hospital, the way you mentioned, they have some serious uh, issues going on. And I'm sure they have loved ones out there that regardless of what they're going through, you know, want to make sure they're in a safe environment. It doesn't sound like, uh, you know, that there's enough, you know, being done for them. I'm just thinking, like, what can we do to kind of, like, advocate on behalf of, not only these people who need mental children who need mental health, you know, help, you know, but kind of just getting people to maybe um, see the uh, the response that needed that's needed maybe from the state or you know the government or whatever to kind of mm-hmm. help these people. Like, what do you what do you think that the process should be or like? You well, know? you know, Mel, here's what I think. I think first of all, I think if it's a state-run hospital, so that means these are funded positions and they need people. Right. So I don't know what their issue of not having people is. I know that they're they're running out of teachers in New York City. And and the reason they're running out is because they fired the ones they had, just like they fired the cops and the firefighters for not having vaccines. So I don't know if that has something to do with it, but that could be part of it. The other thing I look at here is I'm thinking, are there just too many kids there? Right. You know, I worked in child protection and and it was always a thought of mine that there's too many kids in the government system and that there's nobody that knows what has to be done with a kid better than their parent. Now, of course, there's incidents where the parent is unfit and there's abuse and or neglect and it's a genuine thing and the kid is safer being in a group home or a mental hospital than being with their parent. But I think those are very, very few and far between. And I feel like there's an over-reliance on, oh, we don't like this kid, he's too difficult. Uh, And this happens across many spectrums, uh, whether it's classification of children in a classroom to saying, you know what, you know, they caught him trying to smoke a cigarette in his room and he was trying to burn the house down, send him to the mental hospital. You know, I think that um, I've seen things like this and I, I don't think they're good things. So, you know, I, I was during the break, I was telling the producer, I wonder if if this is really uh, a situation where these kids are escaping because they're like, I really shouldn't be here. Right. Because I've been to a mental hospital before, not as a patient, though, but I have visited and I've seen patients in action. And most of them aren't trying to escape. Most of them are actually very heavily medicated while they're having their medication adjusted. And they're usually very friendly. So uh, I just, I find it interesting uh, to say the least. That's my thought on that. But yeah, I think the state should definitely, you know, um, 
you know, get it in gear and and get the right people in there. But again, Michigan has a, a lot of problems, right? There, and many states do. Uh, there, there's a serious problem with employment in our country where there are people that are looking for work and aren't finding it. And there are people that are happy to stay home because they just haven't exhausted the amount of benefits that are available to them. And and if the government continues to make it easy for people to stay home, and I'm not talking about mid-career professionals. I'm talking about like my daughter's age group where she told me that she had friends that didn't work for two years because it was a lot easier to get the pandemic money than it was to work. So a lot of that has run out and hopefully we'll see a change in that. But it's uh, it, it's definitely tough. But uh, I'm I'm thrilled that you're listening and I'm even more thrilled that you called, Melissa. Great call. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Keep up the good work. And we'll, we'll try more about this later on. And thank you Definitely. so much for, you know, putting that, putting those mental health out there and, you know, putting absolutely focus on feel free to call back anytime. Melissa, everybody in Guttenberg, New Jersey, WFAS. All right. Let us continue. We're going to go with uh, Steve in Cleveland, WNIR. Go right ahead, sir. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hey, Rich. It's been a while since I talked to you. And, um, I just want I, I want to put a label on you, okay? You know, on me. When you listen go go to right you ahead. On the, yeah, you don't <laughs> like it, and he has nothing to do with being a liberal because you're ninety eight percent exactly where I want to be. You can leave two percent in there just for um, margin of error. Some people, some people are hard to listen to, and some music's hard to listen to, right? I'm label. I'm, I'm going to label you easy listening. You're very <laughs> Thank you. easy to listen to, and to a lot of other announce, talk show hosts, excuse me. Um, a week ago, I was thinking, why don't they just get prepped and put about five minutes of Rush Limbaugh in their head before their show? <laughs> and then somewhere through and somewhere through their show, get him in there before the ads and get his little bits in there. He left 30 years of, you know, it's going to the Limbaugh you know, archive museum or institute, whatever the heck, what it used to yeah, be. Ins- institute you know, of Conservative so, Studies. <laughs> yeah, because the armored truck was always out there waiting for every hour. So, but if they put somebody in there and really listen, and then they're talking, and then, you know, Rush comes up there for like 10, 20 seconds. He says more in five minutes than most people say in their lifetime. And I'm excluding you're really darn good. You really are. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And listen, I mean, I, whenever it comes to give kudos to El Rushbo, uh, I'm always front and center. And, and again, I didn't even have an opportunity to really listen as often because he was on 12 to, to 3. And that midday, um, I never really had a chance to be in the car to really listen. But I obviously, I've listened to the tapes. And uh, uh, the, from a professional perspective, Limbaugh was really, really good at this, right? He was, he was an entertaining, informative host that was very engaging. You wanted to hear what he had to say. He really kept your company in the time. Three hours would fly right by. And, and he was really good, but he's also very funny, very creative, um, excellent at, at comedic delivery. I mean, he was just really, really good at this stuff. And he was well-versed, a very well-read guy. He could talk about sports. I never talk about sports. He could talk about or a, you know, a professional sports team. So I, I think he just had so much of a breadth of, of knowledge that he could really lend a lot to. Um, and, you know, that's, um, that's, I guess, neither here nor there, but I appreciate the compliment that you paid to me. And I think you're right. Everybody in this business, um, 
you know, we, we have to prepare one way or another. And, you know, for me, it was years of experience in doing all the different stuff that I've done, not the least of which was working in the government, but also with my experience working uh, on the Mark Levin show. And, uh, you know, talk about prep and getting ready for this stuff, trial by fire type of thing. So uh, everybody has a different path, uh, but I do appreciate it. Uh, easy listening. I'll take it. I'll take it all day long. I appreciate it, Steve in Cleveland. Uh, now, did you have a comment on the train derailment? The train derailment, the reason they, they're, they're labeling the fire chief of East Palestine, uh, he was the one that made the call, which he didn't. But it's kind of funny that some guy named Trump, uh, hey, I'm going down there Wednesday. Well, everybody else went down there Tuesday from the EPA all the way to Ohio's governor. And they're uh, toasting water there in some <laughs> lady's kitchen on Tuesday. They're all complete bunch of fools. And EPA is going to stay down there for five years. And we got free clinics open now. And you see those poor people down there. I mean, dear God, with those people, and they're, and they're not wealthy people, but they are farm people. So people can figure out the ground in that. But the last thing I wanted to say is this, is all seriousness, yeah. what's going on now. Rush Limbaugh, 30 years ago, I got it on cassette tape. It says, see, I told you so. On the back of it, it says there, well, the liberals are in the White House. Even Bill Clinton can't destroy the country in four years. Look what the hell they pre-planned, already planned in two years. And I looked at something on a computer tonight, and i got to find out that I'll send you the website, and it's thought something. The draft is still eligible for people to 18 to 26. It's just not enacted, only in war. But they can enact it just like that. So if you took all of Trump's um, everything he did, and we undid it with uh, 48 uh, vetoes or whatever you want to call it, you know, when they executive, executive orders, orders. That, they they undid more mm -hmm. in two years than with Trump in the last 20 years. And I mean, people like you, yeah, you need a lot more of you. You're good at what you do, Rich. Honestly, well, thank God, you. You are really, really good. God bless you, brother. Thank you so much. And and I'll tell you this. I don't think anybody, including El Rushbo, making a statement about not even Clinton could destroy the country. I, I, I agree with that statement only because uh, his policies weren't half as crazy as the policies that we see coming out of the Biden administration or the people going into the Biden administration. I mean, the guy, the luggage thief guy, the guy with the beard and the dress, Karine uh, Jean-Pierre. I mean, I can't find anybody who says, oh, no, my gosh, Karine Jean-Pierre. She's a consummate media professional. She's an excellent communicator. This woman is not good. She's just not good. And, and she's there and she's the face of the White House. Uh, for whatever reason they've chosen her, and I feel bad for her. It's not even an insult. It's, it's sympathy. I feel bad for her, and I feel bad for America. So I think, you know, you didn't have that during the Clinton administration. He was very shrewd. He's still shrewd. Uh, it, it's just a different world now. And, um, again, I, I thank you for your, uh, your comments. We're going to get to the rest of your calls straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Don't move a muscle. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Valdez with an 
All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez keeping your company straight till the top of the hour. And um, we have some callers on the line. I'm going to get to you momentarily. But I want to read you a headline. It's local in my neck of the woods, but um, it's a horrible story no matter where you're from. Mom is suing New York City school system after her daughter, six years old, wakes up alone on a school bus and wanders into a busy street. A Staten Island kindergartner asked a stranger for help miles from an elementary school and could have been kidnapped, according to the mom. Her name is Jenna Carlson. And uh, this happened last May, where Jenna Carlson's six-year-old daughter fell asleep in the back of a bus before the children disembarked during the morning drop-off at their elementary school, PS39 in Staten Island, New York, at approximately 9 a.m., Island Charter, Inc., school bus driver Stephen LaRocca and matron, school bus attendant uh, Pranerva Muka, or Pranvira, excuse me, Pranvira Muka, did not properly check that there were no children left on the bus, according to the lawsuit recently filed on behalf of Carlson in the New York State Supreme Court in Richmond County. LaRocca uh, then parked the bus at his home, located four miles away from the school, and once again did not check or properly check the bus for sleeping children, the lawsuit says. The kindergartner later woke up alone in the back of a locked bus, ex, uh, exited through the back door, and proceeded to cross a busy street, according to the lawsuit. The six-year-old uh, asked a stranger for help. According to the woman, the child was scared and crying, and she looked uh, in her backpack to find a way to contact the parent. Uh, Carlson became extremely distressed upon learning that her child was not dropped off at school and instead left alone in a bus parked on a busy street without any adult in sight and needed to ask a stranger for help. Oh, my gosh. To say that Carlson became extremely distressed, I think if it were me, it'd say Valdez became extremely irate and was hitting people left and right. I would lose mind if this happened to me. The child suffered from fear and emotional distress and was recklessly put in danger of physical harm, blah, blah, blah. Of course, all true. I mean, this is, this is you know, parenting and school bus driving 101. And, and it goes on. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to say this. If this has happened to you, please give me a call. 833, the number four, Valdez, Valdez with an S. And if you think that it's okay for these people to do this, that it's okay to make this kind of mistake at work because everybody makes mistakes and, you know, nobody's perfect. If you want to say that, please give me a call as well. I think this is indefensible. I think that if you do make a mistake like this, you should voluntarily say, look, I'm shutting down my independent owner, operator, school bus business. I'm done. There should be a law that says you're banned if you ever leave a kid sleeping on a bus that you can't drive a bus. You don't. You can't even have a um, a CDL, a commercial driver's license, to drive a truck or a or anything where there's people involved. I think your your livelihood should be threatened, big time, for making that kind of mistake, or at least a, an incredibly severe fine. Right? I mean, if I drop an f bomb here, they can fine me forty seven thousand dollars. I'm not making that up. That's like a real FCC fine. So, if that can happen to me, maybe that should happen to that guy. If 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 you think my my uh, approach of of ending their career is too tough, I think they should do something else, and they should never be that, near children. It should be like a step below Megan's list, because I think when you're entrusted with somebody's kid, especially the transportation of these children, and and you screw it up like that, or you're the school bus driver, and 
these videos where the people are beating down people and having these huge fights. I think that's just totally, uh, I mean, that one's a little bit understanding. It's hard for the bus driver to pull over and become a referee. But um, we have to get stricter. We have to protect children, whether they're escaping from mental hospitals or getting left on school buses. Not cool, no bueno. Anyway, your calls and more straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. No hair, no care, and live on the air, it's Rich Valdez. Let's go to Al in Kalispell, Montana, K-O-F-I. Welcome, Al. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Hey, Rich. Fast question. The child left behind on the bus, isn't that criminal child endangerment? It should be. If it's not, I'm with you, brother. Put this guy, put a slap on the wrist, end his career, the lady too. I mean, I, I just think, imagine if it was a cop. Oh, we found a kid and we were driving the home. We forgot. We left them in the police car in the parking lot of the police. This would be the end of the world. There would be endless saga, right? But it's a school bus driver and we hear crickets. That shouldn't be the case. This is a very, very serious thing, in my opinion. You can't allow people to make a mistake like this and let it go unchecked. So I agree with you. It should be criminal child endangerment if it's not. Al, thank you for the call. I'm going to try and go quickly here. Speed round. Let's go to Sarah, Bedford, Indiana, WBIW. Sarah, go right ahead. Hi, I'm a janitor um, at the previous school district where I worked. I had to be a backup school bus driver, and I was driving preschool kids one afternoon. And I pull into the parking lot thinking I'm done. But one thing they require you to do, and there's a really good reason they do, you have to physically walk to the back of the bus and check all the seats. And sure enough, one day I walked there and there's a kid asleep. And I woke the kid up immediately and said, what's your name? Let me call the office. Called the office. Called mom. And I got the kid home. No problem. I mean, we weren't even running Thank that God. late. But there's, there's a reason for those things. And they always said, never let that driver's chair become an easy chair. And I never, I was always a nervous driver, but I was a safe driver. And because I always religiously checked my bus, you know, it was just a couple minutes late versus what could have been a tragedy. So, yeah, I mean, people have to take this stuff seriously no matter how many times you do it. First time you don't do it, you could have something like that happen. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Mm Mm-hmm. You bet, Sarah. Thank you. And I agree with you. That's the whole job. You're trusted with somebody's kid. You got to get it right. Let's go to Frank in Evergreen, Montana, KOFI. Frank, go right ahead. There's not enough time to finish, but I'll just say that the reason old Jimmy Carter went into uh, home hospice is the old peanut wanted to go out dry roasted. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. Those one-liners are always great. I, I, I wish President Carter the best as he transitions into the afterlife. Um, and once he does, we will uh, discuss it on the show. I wish him the best. Matt in Moorhead City, or close to Moorhead City, North Carolina, WTKF. Go right ahead quickly. 30 seconds. Yes, sir, Rich. I believe that uh, What's up, I'm, I'm, a man? Trump supporter. I'm a Trump supporter just like you, okay? But I think he needs to stop denigrating Ron DeSantis and consider him as a running man. Don't you? 
Yeah. Well, you know, look, I, I don't I, I would love it if Trump uh, didn't go head to head with DeSantis. But again, I, I know Trump realizes this, this is a fight and he, it's a fight he's trying to win. And I don't think he First of all, I don't think there's a, a scenario ever where Ron DeSantis will be second fiddle to anybody. It's like saying Trump could be somebody's vice president. I think these guys both have huge egos and neither one of them is going to do it. Matt, thanks. The music means I got to go. Hasta la próxima. Take care, good night, and God bless. Until the next time, I am Rich Valdez. This is America at Night, and we're going to do it all again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together... It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.